Broadcasting live from TOFUTV.ca. This one's for you. Tonight, a TOFUTV.ca special presentation in conversation with Andy Lee. What's really going on at the Canada Infrastructure Bank? Has liberal cash for access fundraisers led to a serious national security issue? What is the Beijing? Genomics Institute, and why does it operate in Canada? Did you even know we sold our lithium mines to Argentina? Find out all this and more. Like, subscribe, leave a comment in the chat, because this one's for you. ones for you broadcasting live at tofutv.ca my name's pete thanks for joining me i'm your host tonight it is a special presentation i have an interview i've pre-recorded with miss andy lee so first i'm gonna do a, a few quick announcements and we're gonna get right into the interview itself it's uh, about an hour long, and I have put a break in the middle. That way you can get up, get yourself a snack. Uh, but first, a few things I want to announce. We have a subscribe star now. What does that mean? Subscribe star means you can subscribe to the show. You can be a sponsor of the show. I have all these tiers listed, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, right up to 250. I, I mean, I don't know anybody who's going to do 250, but you can subscribe and be a sponsor of the show that way, uh, like Zodzaya. Tonight, we are live on Rumble, and it's thanks to Zodzaya. He uh, is sponsoring weekly he's helping me out and thanks to zudzaya i am able to have a, a rumble account and we're, we're streaming live on there so it's sponsored by zudzaya okay another thing i want to let you know about is march 19th worldwide march for freedom in toronto i'm gonna be there handing out business cards for this show it's gonna have a little qr code on the back and i'm gonna try and spread the word that way all right so I hope to see you there. We're going to get right into this interview because it's a bit of a long one, but it's really awesome. So thanks for joining me. This one's for you. What's, what's the price of gas like out in Calgary right now? Um, you know, geez, that's a good question. I'm, I'm actually not sure. I think the last time I filled up, it was about 1.86. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's like one nine out here in Ontario today. I had to go. Yeah, fill up. I see some prices from Vancouver. It's over two dollars. It's crazy. It's two point, I think it's two point one two. So um, yeah. that's what we get 
right? Yeah, it's a sign of the times. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Oh, thanks for having me. No, for sure, for sure. So, okay, I have here Andy Lee, Andrea Lee, formerly known as Hannah Bananas on Twitter. You're an independent journalist and a federal candidate for the Alberta Maverick Party. Uh, Andrea's been causing quite a stir both on social media and in her blog, available at andyleevna.com. So before we begin, what else should we know about Andy and, and what's VNA? Um, so, uh, there's not much to know about me. I, I, I just joined Twitter, um, you know, just over a year ago, uh, I was locked down. My mom died during lockdowns and I was lonely. So I joined Twitter and started, you know, learning about politics. I really didn't know anything about politics or, or geopolitics. Um, and, you know, I, I started just sort of investigating stuff and, and working and um, so v was a, a really small media organization. I don't really work with them anymore, um, but they gave me sort of a, a free press pass and a media pass, um, you know, when I started podcasting and, and writing articles. And, you know, I just sort of grew this, this beautiful following. And then, you know, obviously I, I was suddenly sort of deplatformed, unfortunately. So, and we still don't know why. Okay, so... So I came across you through Twitter, uh, and that's where you said you just you garnered quite a following. And and the way you did it, at least the way I realized you did it, was these deep dive threads on high up people in government and corporate and financial industry. I'm I'm really curious what got you started down that path. You know. I started, one of the first things that I did was I covered the um, Iranian election that was held. And so that was, uh, you know, they were, um, it was about Ibrahim Raisi, the the butcher of Tehran. And um, people in Iran were looking for help and assistance to cover the election because they were planning on doing a mass boycott of their election. And so they were, um, you know, going to run around and film empty polling stations. And the purpose of this was to show that their election was a sham. Um, and so, you know, I joined this huge chat with like, you know, there's about a hundred of us in it and we filmed all these empty polling stations. And so, you know, we showed that Iranians um, boycotted their, their elections. They decided not to vote in this election because they knew that the, the candidate was already pre-selected. And so what I did is I kind of bundled that all up and I sent it off to Stephen Harper and then Stephen Harper went and he gave a talk. And can I say that he said this because of what he saw for me? I, I don't know, but he does say that, you know, he saw that the election was a sham and that Iranians boycotted this election. And so, you know, that was really provocative moment for me to realize that I had this tool, this social media tool that so many people do nothing with. And maybe I could use it to influence government. And maybe I could use it to do good and to help people. And then I got really sort of fascinated with, you know, foreign affairs. And I started looking at foreign affairs and, you know, in geopolitics and sort of, you know, taking these deep dives into foreign influence in our government. And of course, you know, one of the the number one sort of, you know, countries that we worry about is China. Um, you know, China's, we're always worried about sort of how China is influencing, 
you know, governments and, and corporations. And my, I've married somebody from Hong Kong. My, my children are Chinese, right? So I have a huge um, interest in seeing, you know, a free China and a, and a free Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I guess it was sort of just the, the natural evolution. And a lot of people liked it. I think that there's not a lot of people who sort of did what I did. There's there's a couple of journalists that sort of have that niche, but, um, you know, it was sort of, you know, a niche that, that um, I felt and it was really great because it's things that maybe people weren't normally going to read about in the newspaper um, or that they wouldn't normally be exposed to. And so, you know, people really, for whatever reason, um, you know, started following me and, and really sort of appreciated what I did. And so I think that's why everybody was so hurt when I got taken out on Twitter is, um, yeah, I mean, I did these massive threads, right? You know, these 50 tweet threads. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just sort of, everybody sort of, my followers all helped me too. Right. So I would put through like forward a question and then people would add on to the story, right? And then by the time we would be done, you know, some of my threads had m- millions of views, right? Some of them were translated into eight different languages. Wow, that must that must really uh, have an effect on you just to witness, just to watch that. That's that's incredible, just alone that. So you know, it, it wasn't just. I think that when I was taken out, it wasn't just that I was taken out. It was that we we sort of had a family and we all worked together. Yeah, and it wasn't just. My work, it was our work. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why people were, were really, really hurt when there was this huge backlash against Twitter for um, suspending me for whatever reason that, so that they did. You've mentioned you've mentioned now uh, both China and Iran, uh, but I noticed on your bio on Getter it said you weren't welcome in China, Iran, and Pakistan. So why don't we just take a quick Louis here and 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 why Pakistan? I I can understand China and Iran already, but so there's a there's a man who protests in Pakistan. Um, his name is Dr. Adil Ghori, and we still keep in touch. And so um, he sort of got me to write my first article. Um, so CBC Rosemary Barton had uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan on. And uh, they were talking about the need for internet censorship and restrictions. And this was back when Bill C-10 was on the table. And so what happened is, uh, you know, Rosemary Barton sort of gave this audience to a man who uh, went on later on to, you know, give interviews and and say that basically women were being raped in, in Pakistan because of the way that they were dressing. And Pakistan, of course, is one of the most dangerous countries in the world for women. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I really rallied hard against CBC. And that's when I got a real a sort of anger at our mainstream media, because I was like, we should never have platformed this man. Mm-hmm. Um, he shouldn't be lecturing us on, you know, what's proper in Canada. Yeah. So, um, and so this man, Dr. Adil Ghuri from Pakistan saw me, you know, sort of fighting against Twitter against, you know, um, Imran Khan and contacted me. And he started sending me stories about um, forced conversions, forced Islamic conversions, um, and what goes on in Pakistan. And I had no idea, right? And so he protests. Um, he's a Christian. He protests against, uh, you know, forced Islamic conversions in Siakot. 
And, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous thing that he does. That, that was where a man was lynched and burned alive. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not too sure, but in Pakistan, you have to be uh, Muslim. It's a, it's a Muslim country by law, right? Is that how it works? or? It, it's not, but it's just, you know, that's the way that Imran Khan is sort of pushing it, right? Oh, okay. um, and so what happens is there's these, you know, these girls, they're children, and, uh, you know, According to, you know, Sharia law, as long as they are, you know, have their period, they can be sort of married off and, right. and forced converted to Islam. And they're held in horrible conditions and thousands and thousands of these girls disappear every year. Um, and it's really, really horrifying. Nobody talks about it. The UN doesn't talk about it. And, you know, and, and we're sitting there and we're having a conversation on our on our primetime news with the prime minister, mm -hmm. not even talking about what, what seems to be a genocide. So, you know, that, that really sort of got me fired up when I realized that nobody was talking about these things in Canada, um, you know, and, and we are a multicultural, uh, you know, country. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have a lot of, of immigrants here and that's a good thing. And these are things that matter to some people and nobody was covering them or covering them properly. So that actually, I actually wrote my, my very first article, um, you know, uh, because of Dr. Adil Ghori. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be here if, if it weren't probably for him. Yeah. And then um, Spencer Fernando sort of took me under my wing and he retweeted that first article. Okay. Um, and then, uh, well, you know, sort of, I got a base built up from there, right? Okay, that that makes sense. Because that was actually something I was, I was going to ask you a little later on was uh, if you had considered working with any other alt media companies like post millennial or the rebel or true north uh, and and i was curious because you do like really substantial work that you would assume those companies to just be headhunting you like to pick you up and get them under their brand uh and i was just interested that you know you're you're under your own name i like that personally that's something that, that i like but i'm curious why it's it's complicated. Um, yeah, I have to. Them. I have a good relationship with them, right? Like I I, I talked to True North, and they were all we were following each other, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, Rebel News journalists, we were following each other, and you know, Western Standard. So you know, good relationship with all of them, um, and some job offers. I think the problem with me is is that because of what I how I like to do things, and I don't like to feel pressured it's really hard for me to make a commitment if they're like, well, we want 10 articles a week or 12 right. articles. A week. That's a lot for, for what I do because I mm -hmm. start a whole bunch of stuff and then I might go away for it for a bit mm -hmm. and then I'll follow, like I'll come across another puzzle piece. Right. Um, and then I'll add on to that story. So it's you know, almost I like an art for you. That would be a good fit. And so yeah. I don't get paid for what I do. Right. Um, I do all this, for free, you know, I don't make any money off of it or anything like that. But I don't know if, if I tried to sort of, you know, submit to that pressure of, of keeping up with and what we have is a very short news cycle. And I think that's mm -hmm. a lot of the trouble with our news nowadays is, you know, you used to get a, a newspaper and you'd read it in the morning. And then, you know, you'd follow up on those stories at night, um, you know, on your evening news, but now we've got social media. And, you know, social media's demands are, are, you know, very, very high. They want 
you know, crank out stuff, right? People mm -hmm. just look at headlines now. They don't even read the stories. Um, so I think that this is part of the downfall of, of you know, reporting and, and it's sort of, you know, social media in some ways has been the death of, of real journalism um, because, you know, you have to sort of fulfill this, this never ending cycle that's trying to crank out stories as quickly as possible to keep your attention. And mm -hmm. when you do that, you don't have time to, to do the things that I like to do. It almost, it almost forces you to appeal to emotion. And uh, in that sense, kind of, it steers these uh, these companies that are are you know they're trying to put out a lot of content. What I what I tend to see it does is it it almost forces their hand into sensationalism in order to keep that attention span, in order to get people to to last more than the first thirty seconds of that YouTube video. And and I couldn't agree more with with uh, your your stance on that. And I I really appreciate what you said there that you like to come at it. Uh, casually, because that means that you're you're putting honesty, and it's um, it's like an art to you, and I I can really appreciate that. Uh, you've covered ties between China and our government, as well as Trudeau's foundation, and even Little Potato himself as an individual. What are some of the things uh, that the average Canadian? you know, soccer mom might not be aware of concerning Justin's affinity for business dealings with the CCP and uh, just what are things that that average Canadians are just just not getting with this situation? Well, you know, I, I don't think so. a lot of people say, well, what is what is China have on Trudeau, right? I, I don't think China has anything particular on Trudeau. Um, I think that Justin Trudeau was was very naive, and I don't think that when he started, uh, you know, his, um, you know, in uh, as prime minister, I don't think that he appreciated um, Xi Jinping for what he was, um, and the Chinese Communist Party for what it was becoming. I don't think any of us did, um, you know, back in 2014, 2015. Um, and you know, I, I tried to figure out where we where we went wrong with China because. You know, I kept coming across these stories where people who had interacted with our, our prime minister um, ended up, uh, you know, in trouble or uh, disgraced or, you know, they were victims of scandal. So there was the retirement homes with Ann Bang, uh, you know, the, the CEO of that, uh, Wu Zaihui, he ended up serving 18 years uh, in prison in China for fraud. Um, so I was like, well, why did we sell our retirement homes in BC to to this individual and you know this was green lighted by our government and keep in mind these retirement homes ended up being seized by the provincial government mm -hmm. because of abuse and neglect of seniors in them so this deal never should have happened and this man had a, a very shady past to begin with uh, and there's similar things like why did we invest in china bank like uh you know justin trudeau rubbed shoulders with you know the the owner of china bank and I mean, China Bank is going under, right? It's one of those massive property developers that's sinking. Um, you know, they tried to get us to invest in Evergrande at his cash for access fundraisers. Uh, well, we all know what happened to Evergrande, right? It's done for, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, so I kept running into these and, and I, I tried to figure out why. And, you know, the best thing I can figure out why is that, 
he was very naive, I think. I don't think he appreciated, you know, sort of the Chinese Communist Party for what it was. And I think he very much wanted to leave a legacy like his father did, because his father, of course, was the he was the one that established diplomatic relations with China to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. Pierre Elliott Trudeau did that. And so uh, I think he really wanted a free trade deal with China. Uh, and I think that a lot of that went sour because uh, part of that free trade deal was to be a coastal pipeline. Right. So um, what happened is that, you know, his own policies ended up killing off all the pipelines except for one. And that one he ended up buying. And I think he ended up buying it because he had to if he was going to mm-hmm. try to salvage a trade deal with China. But of course, that all fell to pieces after, you know, the Michaels were taken hostage. Uh, you know, and so, you know, that, that sort of, you know, wasn't possible after that. But I think, you know, that's sort of something that I think that that's sort of where it all started is he just really, really desperately wanted this this free trade deal. You know, he wanted to do something historic. Uh, and, you know, he was sort of willing to sell uh, his soul and Canadian soul to, you know, to get it. And he did. And it turned out very badly in many yeah. cases. I've, and he I've... never answered for it. And I read early in his uh, prime ministership, he was doing things like like selling our gold reserves to uh, to Chinese in some capacity. And it just seemed to me from my perspective that, you know, like you said, naivety, but also hubris. Also hubris, the idea that that, you know, nobody's going to mess with Canada. We're right next to the United States. And and, you know, we got NATO to back us up, just like, you know, kind of like what's happening right now with the way that they're they're uh, beating the war drums over towards Russia. Well, we know we know that if if Russia were to retaliate in any way, shape, or form, the only way we could defend ourselves is if we were to run to NATO in some capacity. So I was actually curious because, you know, I have you here. Do you know if there's any, like, connection between Canadian corruption and, and what's going on over in Eastern Europe? Have you, have you dived into that at all? I, I haven't really... Um... You know, I haven't read a lot about uh, Ukraine. I actually have family in Ukraine. Okay. I have no idea what's going on with them. So it's, it's, it's close to home. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, my dad was, uh, my dad's Ukrainian. Uh, you know, he was born in, in Germany during the war. So, um, you know, I, I'm really horrified by, by what I'm seeing. And yeah, I really yeah. haven't, uh, I haven't probably given it the attention that, that it should uh, be getting. Uh, I guess the only thing is, I can say about that is that I mean, you know, when Ukraine asked Justin Trudeau for for help and for weapons, he sent them night vision goggles and Kevlar vests, right? Mm-hmm. He sent them non-lethal weapons. That was what he did in January when they were begging for help. That was his first, uh, you know, his first sort of reaction, um, and he sort of refused to, you know, send them any sort of weaponry until, you know, until late into the game. And I mean, I, I don't really understand why, you know, we didn't start applying sanctions when they were lined up uh, at the border. And I mean, everybody knew what was going to happen, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the world just sort of sat there and, and watched. And now everybody's, you know, shocked and, and aghast at what's happening. Well, 
I mean, what did you think was going to happen if you oh, didn't sanction Russia ahead of time and try to deter this, right? It's, it's, it's really interesting because, like, on one hand, you look at it and you say, yeah, well, you didn't do anything. But on the other hand, you can look at it and say, you're kind of doing too much, <laughs> you know, because uh, it, it looks like to me, from my perspective, that what is happening there is Russia had their hand forced, that there was some agreements at the at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and and those agreements are being completely just disregarded. And due to Russian military policy, this was something that the West, they knew uh, would would force the bear to come out of the cave, and so they they followed those policies of arming the Ukrainians uh, and arming the insurgency that's in there that they're they're labeling as Nazis, right? And so, in my mind, what it takes me back to is the '80s with. Uh, you know, you have the Americans and the Russians, and the Americans are funding Al Qaeda. And what you get out of that is Osama bin Laden, which 20 years later, they end up having to go in and, and mop up themselves. So it's it's like a repeat of that situation on a different level. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, you always have to be really careful what ha when you intervene, right, in other countries' affairs. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when you arm one group, uh, what's going to happen to that group after if they win, right? And then, yeah, mm -hmm. you do see, uh, you know, you do see sort of terrorist groups being being created uh, in the aftermath when, you know, we meddle it in other countries' affairs. So it, it's a really, really delicate game. It, it, it's, you know, it's above me. Like I said, I, I wish that, you know, maybe we had started uh, soft sanctioning China or sorry, uh, Russia ahead of time, uh, you know, just to just to test the waters and and see how that mm -hmm. happened. You know, see if we could have prevented this. Um, but you know, probably they were going to do it no matter what. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Kind of seemed yeah. like an inevitable once he got on TV and started making that speech. You know, is is kind of a reason why I wanted to interview you was because, you know, you're one of the only. Uh, journalists out there, investigative journalists who's who's dealing with these these delicate topics and doing it in a way where it's getting out there. Uh, plenty of journalists and broadcasters, even some politicians, uh, they've come out over the past few weeks and months to declare that there is absolutely no conspiracy, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here in regards to the Davos group and the World Economic Forum. And now I've noticed that you've been doing a little bit of work on them and their involvement in Canada, as well as a deep dive into the rather new Can uh, Canada Investment Bank. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I wanted to look at the, the Canada Infrastructure Bank because uh, it's a curious creation. Uh, you know, it, it was actually the brainchild of, you know, Larry Fink, so BlackRock CEO. He met Justin Trudeau at Davos. Uh, the Canada Infrastructure Bank was, it was a, an election promise. It was always supposed to be made. Uh, it, but then all of a sudden, after this meeting with Justin Trudeau, and this was Justin Trudeau, uh, Christian Freeland, and it was set up by uh, Dominic Barton, who eventually became our ambassador to China. 
Um, and, you know, he was obviously uh, the head of uh, McKinsey, the global head of McKinsey. McKinsey has really strong ties to China, as does BlackRock. Um, so I wanted to, to sort of pick that institution apart. And, and uh, so all of a sudden after this meeting, what happened is uh, what came out of it was we weren't no longer just going to have a, you know, an infrastructure bank. We were going to, you know, do private public partnerships and right. perhaps privatize some infrastructure. Right. And the and, private public partnership was the name of the forum before the Great Reset Forum. It was like yeah. that was the title. That's what they were pushing before the whole pandemic was private public partnership. So continue. No, 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 that's great. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it is very much tied to that. And if you look at there's other things like there's a, a global initiative as well that John McBarton was a part of. Uh, and, you know, Biden's a part of it. Uh, I got some documents from CSIS, actually, and, and they talk about how they want to privatize structure, uh, infrastructure in third world countries. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit insidious. Uh, they want to beat China to the punch doing it. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, China does the same thing with their Belt and Road Initiative, right? Right. Um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, slowly sort of they give out loans for infrastructure projects. And then, you know, when these countries can't repay their loans, they, they sort of take their critical infrastructure and then they own it. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically, you know, there's an initiative for North America to do the same thing. Um, and, you know, it, so, I mean. It's kind of like a way of, yeah. We're taking it, third world countries by, you know, trying to take over their infrastructure and, and beat China at their own game. I mean, yeah, it's corrupt. It is what it is. It's corrupt and it's it's very greasy. I mean, like Canadian yeah. way of putting it. Uh, I mean, and then so what happened with our, our own infrastructure bank is that they found a very unique way to finance it because nobody wanted to finance these projects, uh, frankly, because a lot of them are green projects and right. they're good ones, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so if you look at, there was a, a rail line being built in Montreal. Um, so what happened is uh, there was cost overruns in the project, large cost overruns. Um, and so who they partnered up with and how they've actually arranged this, this infrastructure bank funding is most of the time they're, they're partnered up with a public pension plan. Right. So either the Canada pension plan, uh, you know, the Ontario teachers pension plan, uh, the Quebec pension plan, right? And so what they do is if there's cost overruns, those overruns are often absorbed by the pension. So by Canadians. Mm -hmm. so, so these jobs go sour, right? Or if we you know, foot they the go bill. Budget, people, yeah, it comes out of your public pension. Yeah, that's... Um, so yeah, it, it's it's very it's, very strange creation, and we haven't seen really you know any projects. There's a lot of talk about projects in the works, but um, you know there, there's not a lot of projects actually being built or being completed. And you know I question the financial viability. So a lot of the the people who worked on this this rail project, they they quit because they said it just wasn't necessary. It was sort of like a make work project. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so what are we doing here? Right? It, it seems it seems like a, a money laundering scheme. I mean, in the long run, that's what you kind of allude well, to in that 
right? Oh, yeah. I'm Catherine McKenna blocks me because I told her it was, I told her the Canada Infrastructure Bank was a, a liberal corporate welfare Ponzi scheme machine. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that's what it is, basically. You know what? Like taxpayers, or sorry, corporations might put in a little bit and then taxpayers put in a lot. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, if the project doesn't go well or doesn't garner revenue down the road, well, guess who's on the hook, right? Your pension plan is. Yeah, Catherine McKenna, she's a work of art. My goodness, I you know how they call her uh, climate Barbie? Well, I found out who her husband was, and then I found out all the drivel that he's been writing in Globe and Mail, and I've decided to call him Vaccine Ken. That's that's my nickname <laughs> for him. <laughs> I, I never called her climate Barbie, but I, I did tell her what I Understood. thought of her, yeah. of her infrastructure bank, and she didn't like that. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, so that was something that I did. So I did a five-part series. I actually have more to do with that. Uh, you know, I've got probably two more articles to write on that. So, so yeah, and a lot of people really liked that because it was sort of a, this mysterious, shady structure uh, that we're funding, and, and nobody really sort of had any idea. So, uh, you know, a lot of people really, really liked that work that I did. Well, because it shows exactly it shows exactly the nature of the of the corruption we deal with, the way that the people in Parliament believe that the populace is like a, a vessel for them to use for their own financial gain, for their own uh, schemes. And it, and it keeps getting swept under the rug, Parliament after Parliament after Parliament. But now we got this drama teacher in there and he just can't cover it up for his life. Like it's he's just bad. Too right, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. this is a this is a mechanism created so that corporations could could make money off of public public infrastructure projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, this is the Davos elite. This is you know SNC Lavalin, uh, Bombardier's bid on these cut these contracts. Um, right. Every Monday, seven p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This one's for you. It goes live. Time, time to be heard, Canada. Caller, you're on the air. Who is this? Who am I talking this to? This show is for you. No more corporate mainstream media telling you what to think and what to say. This one's for you. Available live at tofutv.ca. The only online talk show giving you the chance to call in and be heard. This one's for you. Streaming live every Monday at tofutv.ca. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, I know what you're thinking. I'm a super chill cat. And you know what? You're right. You could be a super chill cat by sharing the show tofutv.ca with your friends. Tune in Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah.
So, so okay, so you said you don't really know why you got kicked off of Twitter, but these are all very rich people that you're kind of stepping in the ring with. So I think it's safe to say we have an idea why you got kicked off of Twitter, but I'm curious what other kind of pushback you've received. I heard that you got lumped in with the with the trucker convoy uh, with, with them, got your assets uh, uh, seized or, or frozen for a bit. Tell me about it. Well, I, I, I lumped myself in with the truckers and I did it because, uh, you know, I had a feeling uh, that I knew what media would say about them and they didn't disappoint, right? No. They discredited these people. They called them names. Uh, you know, Andrew Coyne called them a bunch of, uh, anti-social yobs with, you know, delusions of grand grandeur and uh, a persecution complex. Um, so, you know, they got called all kinds of terrible things. A prime minister called them terrible things, right? So I joined the trucker convoy willingly because I wanted to meet these people for myself and find out what they were like um, and try to give them a, a fair shot for what they were doing, uh, understanding that it was probably going to end disastrously, and it did. Um, but, you know, and so that's sort of, so, I, you know, I did it to myself um, and I was very openly supportive of, of what, what I saw to be a peaceful protest. I personally didn't witness any violence. Uh, did I witness, you know, rowdy behavior? Yes. Did I witness? It was a party. <laughs> Certainly. Um, you know, did I, but I mean, did I ever feel unsafe around this gang? Absolutely not. I mean, some MPs said that they were they were rapists, right? That's there ridiculous. was no rape, or, I, or I, even or even you know threats of rapes reported to to Ottawa police. So I mean, you know, they got and and I mean, I certainly was not concerned in the least walking among these people. And I spent a lot of time heating up in their cabs. It was very very cold out, and they're very very welcoming. Um, so, you know, so uh, and so I, I don't know why my bank got shut down in Ottawa, but it did. I have talked to some politicians. Uh, they think it's very likely that I was targeted using the Emergencies Act. So I have mm -hmm. contacted the bank with some questions, uh, you know, as to it, whether that was the case. I don't know if they're compelled to, to tell me whether it was the case or not. Or, you know, was it just a, a simply a time of chaos for the banks? And did they see me making some transactions and decide to seize those transactions and, and close my bank uh, because I was in Ottawa doing that at the time? So, you know, and I don't know if we're ever going to know the answer to that. Uh, I don't expect them to say, yeah, we, we seized your bank under the Emergencies Act. But it wasn't just my bank. So I, PayPal also has, has closed my account and informed mm -hmm. me that I'll not be able to... Um, even though I've got two bank accounts and two credit cards linked and they're verified, uh, PayPal has informed me I will never again be able to use their platform. So, and uh, you know, some of my credit cards, uh, you know, uh, what happens is if I try to make a, a transaction, it'll be stopped or seized and I have to call the fraud department. And so, yeah, so, I mean, there was That's, that. Was yeah. that why I was taken out? It's possible. Uh, you know, people who were driving with me to Ottawa, and this was sort of when we took the main convoy into Ottawa from Kingston. Uh, you know, so there was thousands of, of people with me mm -hmm. that day, right? 
this was sort of like the last day when the last main convoy went in. And so people in my car had their Twitter accounts suspended the same day at the same time that I did. Almost like it was uh, done with location services or something like that or, or network services or something. I've heard stories we were where CSS... Back home. We were back home when the accounts right. got shut down, but it's just okay. sort of like, what are the odds of, you know, out of all the millions of Twitter users that, mm -hmm. you know, two people in the same car get shut down at the same time on the same day, they get suspended permanently without yeah. reason. I've heard stories of people involved in the freedom convoy. Pardon me. So, and, you know, we just happened to be involved in, in the freedom convoy. Yeah. People put out that I was an organizer as well. That wasn't correct. I, I didn't organize yeah. anything. Um, you know, I did, I did follow along with them. I talked on the CB radio, uh, you know, and tried to keep the convoy together. It, it was a massive operation to, to bring it into Ottawa obviously and you know some parts of this kept breaking up and things like that so um i did bring up sort of the rear and you know get the entire convoy back together sort of safely and get them rolling help get them rolling together and then i drove ahead and you know filmed them as they were going into ottawa and then i sort of you know got in front of them uh you know to try to beat them into ottawa to get a parking spot <laughs> so um, but, you know, I mean, as far as organizing, yeah, there was a lot of people on the CB radio who were, who were talking. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think you could say I was one of the sort of main organizers or anything like that, right? Did I tag along? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people did. Um, did I donate? Yeah, I donated. I know a lot of people who donated it as well. Not everybody got popped, but you know what? A lot of them did, but a lot of them didn't. So it makes sense. I was I was uh, gonna mention there. I've I've heard stories firsthand from people who have seen their cell phone type messages for them. It's the police using their is law enforcement on some level using their technology. I think it's called a stinger, uh, but they can get right into the phone and shut off data. They can shut off this, shut off that. Use your apps, whatever. But I've I've heard firsthand that. People have witnessed it happen like in their hands. So any number of, of techniques could have been used against you guys. And you mentioned that you had Andrew Coyne there. Uh, he was, he was harping on the subject and, and you know, we're in the alternative media field. What ends up happening is you get these mainstream ego uh, folks who will, they'll, try to punch down towards you, you know? And I was, I was actually curious beyond post-millennial, what kind of support have you gotten for your work within the industry? Well, I, you know, I think that's sort of why I became a problem is because uh, I did, you know, I fought against a lot of our legacy media over, over what they were doing. And I was really appalled by, by some of what, what I saw and what they were doing. Um, but I also had support from legacy media as well. Like I did have some, you know, some very big followers um, and, you know, people in mainstream media who supported me. And, you know, some other, you know, big, big accounts like, you know, hedge fund manager Carl Bass supported me. Um, like I said, all the independents supported me. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson was, was retweeting me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think that's, 
when I really sort of became a problem for the government is because I didn't just have my own following. All of a sudden, you know, if you've got somebody like Jordan Peterson retweeting you, I don't have 30,000 followers. Now I've got millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it, I think that's, you know, why I was such a problem is because, yeah, I did sort of do fringe reporting and I reported on things that nobody else reported on. And, you know, I did sort of look into WEF things, conspiracy theory zones, but I did it in a way that wasn't insane. And, uh, you know, I stuck to the facts and, uh, you know, it, it was hard to deny sort of or discredit the work that I did. And some mainstream media re- retweeted my threads, right? Like a lot of people did. A lot of um, people from post media retweeted my stuff, um, you know, and. Uh, I know Terry Glavin, you know, liked to uh, retweet my stuff sometimes on China as well. And so I think that was sort of why I was a problem is that, you know, I was sort of pulling these punches at the government and I was going against the grain of mainstream media. But I also had the support and I wasn't discredited. And, you know, I talked about the things that people don't want to talk about that normally mm-hmm. get them labeled as, as a fringe conspiracy theorist. And, uh, you know, I started proving these conspiracy theories uh, were right. And so, you know, when you look at uh, BGI, so BGI is a, is a laboratory, it's called Be- uh, Beijing Genomics Institute. So, you know, it's a lab that was set up uh, in China and, you know, it sent out COVID tests worldwide. And I was very suspicious of it because it was, you know, it was developed by the People's Liberation Army in China. So I was always very reluctant and also worked with uh, Huawei. So I started questioning whether we should be using these tests and people called me conspiracy theorist. And then Reuters started coming out with articles questioning the tests. And then our senators started questioning the tests Mm. as to whether perhaps uh, this institute was collecting, you know, DNA from Canadians and using it in a you know global genetic database, the global gene bank that they have, and of course that project is managed by Huawei. So, you know, so I started sort of going into this conspiracy theory territory, but um, also, you know, doing it in a factual way where it, it was proven. And so BGI ended up being sanctioned in the United States, actually, um, and we Thank still you. have a lab in Canada so uh, so you know that's sort of the problem and so you I could ostensibly that, say that's that's because of your work right because you, you shone a light on it and then you know from there Reuters and and it's I think a lot of people did a lot of yeah. people did um, you know and so and, and they, it was not just the COVID test they also did prenatal tests uh, you know, where they did the same thing. And so the question is, are they building sort of a, a global genetic database, uh, you know, where they could maybe do have race specific, uh, you know, treatments or even bioweapons or, you know, right. could they use this to, to further repress minorities like the Uyghurs? That's something that's something that's being talked about this week because of what's happening in the Ukraine with the bio labs. Uh, the Russians are obviously accusing them of being bioweapons labs, whereas the United States is just saying, no, they're bio labs. And, and like you said, there's that 
that scare that what they might be attempting, whether it's the West or the Russians, we don't know at this stage of propaganda, uh, a race-based chemical attack, biological attack. That's what I've been reading over the last couple nights was was that that is the big fear, a race-based biological uh, attack. And well, you know, sorry, I was a fear with good uh, reason. So I started sort of translating, you know, the, the People's Liberation Army, their sort of military handbook. And I mean, they've got sections and sections on, on race-specific bioweaponry in it um so you know it it's definitely a concern right and is it conspiracy theory territory yeah a little bit but i mean is it also a matter of national security like do we just pretend that you know maybe this isn't possible or maybe it's not happening no how right, many things and so you know and i think that was the problem is that you know i did have politicians and legitimate journalists following me and, you know, I had people in the defense sector and I had, you know, uh, you know, cybersecurity experts following me. I had consulates around the world following me. And so, you know, when I start doing things like, uh, you know, busting the Canadian government and Trudeau on lithium mines, and that was my story, and getting U.S. lawmakers, uh, you know, angry at our governments, um, you know, and sort of I've got this steamrolling audience that that's helping me, uh, you know, yeah. it, it was a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think sorry to see me go put it that way. <laughs> no, I, I understand what you're saying, you know, and you say um, it's conspiracy theory territory. But how many times over the last two to three years have you said something sounds like a conspiracy theory only to two weeks later three weeks later be like yeah no that's real that's true that's exactly it and i think the truth is is you've done honest and good work and that honesty is a threat to corruption and so i'd like to congratulate you because you've you've been successful what you've done is successful and i think it's something that others need to look at as an example that if you feel like you can accomplish something that it is important to try because like you said at the beginning you were just you're just kind of giving it a shot and then you were given a leg up and look at you now you you've managed like ostensibly to change geo geopolitics so what i'm i'm curious about is if these folks in the mainstream media if they if they gave you the headline tomorrow if they gave you the lower third on the 6 p.m. news, what would you want to get out there to the world? What is what is the headline of the paper tomorrow morning? That's a really odd question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really, really hard question. I honestly don't know. I guess it's just sort of like, is this what we've come to? Is this what... It's not just me. I mean, my friend, Michael Sanger, he's an author, right? He's very, very mm -hmm. famous. I don't know if you've read his book. So, I mean, we, we did a lot of work and, you know, we chatted a little bit. I, I say friend loosely, right? We, we were friends on Twitter. We chatted a bit. We sort of bounced ideas off of each other about China. So, I mean, he was just permanently suspended as well from Twitter. Right. Um, you know, we were both anti-lockdown proponents, even though I'm vaccinated. Uh, you know, I was very much against, uh, you know, any sort of digital identification. Uh, I'm very, very wary of that. 
and you know sort of the applications that that could stem from something like that and you know i'm very much against uh restrictions mandates masks for children right we can't see that forever mm-hmm. so he was sort of uh you know it's a team in that respect and so he was also just taken out uh and that was very very devastating and you know you're seeing more and more in this and i mean there's no real real good answers so i mean is is this the future of canada right i mean uh, that's that's the headline a, i think that a lot of people were scared by what happened to me uh, because mm-hmm. you know they just, if it can happen to you it can happen to anyone well because, because you're a large large name now i wrote was disproved nothing was untrue mm-hmm. um you know things ended up being backed up by you know security documents and you know uh you know a lot of people came back at me about the lithium mine story and said you know this this doesn't matter it doesn't have anything to do with national security i said it has everything to do with national security and i could harped you, on it could you let us know it. exactly like the lithium mine story could you just back up and and just explain to the listener real quick yeah so um so there was this the sale that that happened it's a large mine in argentina it was a canadian mine asset owned by canada and it was sold off to a chinese mining giant called uh, zijin and this is zijin's fourth acquisition in you know since 2018 and none of these takeovers have been reviewed for uh national security reasons and we have this ability under the Investment Canada Act to conduct national security reviews and to block takeovers, foreign takeovers, if we choose. Um, We're allowed to do that. And so last year, uh, we signed a joint agreement with the United States to sort of stockpile critical minerals and and elements, Um, you know, because we're really behind in the game. And uh, if you look at China, China's been, China's had this plan in place to stockpile critical minerals since the 1980s. So they've been hoarding these, you know, these essential minerals that we need for everything, right? You need it for everything. Uh, Mm -hmm. Telecommunications, defense, F-35s, right? Anything. Name it. You need it. And so it's sort of like, you know, when you see China, China's quietly bought up small and mid-sized mines worldwide without a lot of scrutiny until recently. Uh, you know, and now they've sort of got a monopoly over a lot of these minerals. And so we're waking up and saying, hold on, is this smart? Uh, you know, and it, it wasn't smart. And like I said, we're not just like a couple of years behind China. We're decades behind them. Right. This has been yeah. their game plan for, for decades. So, you know, I raised the alarm over that. And a lot of people said, well, you know, it's an Argentinian mine. It's got nothing to do with us. And I said, no, it has everything to do with us. Plus, you know, we told the United States that we were going to, agree to stockpile minerals. So this is a, a mineral asset. And so I caused quite a bit of trouble. And, uh, you know, I, I started an inquiry in the House of Commons. And uh, it actually just had a meeting uh, a couple of days ago. So you can look it up. There's a meeting on, on, uh, on you know, critical minerals. And, uh, you know, there's a review going on for the, the takeover of, of Neolithium. That was the company and they're going to, uh, you know, subject it to a review and, and question as to why it wasn't subjected to a national security review. There are a number of, of weird things that went on with that acquisition. Uh, BlackRock made a very large share purchase right before the deal was approved. 
It's never a good sign. <laughs> never a good sign when BlackRock's on the on the bill. You just know it's it's going back well, to Mr. Schwab. How did they know that it wasn't going to be subjected to a security review? Well, maybe because they're on the oh. board of the WEF with Christia Freeland. <laughs> I mean, like they're rubbing shoulders, right? Like that's that's the story. So there's all sorts of strange things. And so, so that was a lot of trouble. And some people felt that maybe that was, you know, my, why if my government tried to get me shut down, that could have been why. Because it has caught the attention now of, of United States lawmakers and United States lawmakers now looking at it. So it, it's gone sort of further than Canada's news cycle, uh, you know, and it didn't get a, a terrible lot of attention in Canada's mm -hmm. news cycle. It probably wouldn't have if I hadn't have been harping on it. It probably would have, you know, passed sort of, you know, unquestioned. Um, but now, you know, we've got sort of congressmen asking questions about it and asking whether President Biden was aware of this sale and whether, you know, we consulted him as per our agreement. And, you know, yes, President Biden was aware. He's aware because I told him. <laughs> Good I tagged job. So you tagged, was, you tagged him, eh? <laughs> I tagged, well, I just said, you know, has anybody told President Biden that we're selling off this mine to China and nobody's questioning it? And nobody's even giving it a security review to see if it's something that we should hold on to. Keep in mind, the Jim's chairman said that this was the largest mining asset in the world. Well, one of the largest lithium mining assets in the world. So, I mean, yeah, you know, and lithium's it's right. It's, it's liquid gold. It's what we need right now, considering what we started the conversation with gas prices. What did they say the other day? Oh, you're worried about the rising gas prices? Go buy an electric car, as if we don't already know what they're trying to say. Well, and this is the problem with lithium is that, you know, it, it's really, it's difficult to refine and, you know, it it's, makes the batteries. The batteries are super expensive, right? So, I mean, when you see the peaking prices of lithium, it's, you know, mm -hmm. and I mean, there was a report that was put out uh, from the United States saying that, uh, you know, at some point sort of China had flooded the market with, with rare earths and, and rare minerals, and they did it to devalue these minerals. And then they went ahead and sort of acquired these mines after sort of devaluing their their assets and destabling the market, that's the sort of thing that a communist country can do, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they can they can go ahead and do that sort of thing, um, whereas you know, capitalist countries can't. So, uh, you know, they've got an advantage, and they've definitely been playing us to their to their advantage. So, so yeah, so that was the story about the the lithium mines, and it's still going on. Uh, you know, and we'll see what comes from this this review, and you know, we'll see how hard these lawmakers sort of press our government on that. But you know, mm -hmm. I suspect that, that they're really not happy about me happy about me doing that, um, <laughs> especially <laughs> getting President Biden in there, and uh, you know, and so now, yeah, so now some congressmen are like, "Well, Biden, you know, were you privy to this as well?" And I was like, "Well, I mean." Somebody was right. I tagged him in there, you know. Yeah. It got retweeted. He has a social media manager. Yeah. So I mean, somebody, somebody saw this message, right, and either you wow. know ignored it 
or they were complicit in it. So which is it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so. No, that's interesting stuff. That's great. I, you know what? I appreciate the work you're doing, Andrea. It's, it's, uh, you're doing a service for the country, more than just the country, for the world. You're internationally known now for the threads and the work you've put together. And, uh, it's something that is really appreciated. Uh, before we, before we, like, uh, before we end off here, I just, I'm really curious, these deep dives, when you, when you get this information on the, on the lithium mine, like, how do you come across that? Like, cause is it really just like all crowdsourced, uh, people sending you this information and then you're kind of putting the yarn wall together and, and throwing it into a thread? That one was mostly me. So, you know, like I said, when I initially started questioning this, a lot of people came back and said, well, it's an Argentinian mine. It has nothing to do with Canada, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I read very thoroughly through the, the Investment Canada Act. And, you know, I started reading a lot about mines. And so, so that one was pretty much me. So that was like a, an almost 60 tweet thread that I put out on that. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one of my my longer ones just explaining and going into detail as to you know how we use these critical minerals and how other countries have been uh, stockpiling them and you know how we sort of get off get off the source i mean what happened to and you know and how they can be used to hold countries hostage so what happened is um japan actually had like a run-in with china and um what happened is that uh, you know, trying to cut off their, their critical minerals. Uh, and so, you know, as sort of a retaliatory thing. And so, you know, they're sort of one of the only countries to get off China for, for critical minerals. Um, they partnered up with Australia and Australian mines. And so it just goes to show you that, yeah, so I'm like, you know, this is a reality, you know, it, it's not, it's not a far out there thing. It, you know, if we, mm -hmm. uh, in China, they could cut off our critical minerals. Now, I mean, when you saw slowdowns in production lines uh, because of the semiconductor shortage, that was billions and billions of dollars in lost uh, productivity within weeks. So, I mean, you know, if they decide to sort of hold something hostage that we need, uh, you know, it, it's very, very effective. Uh, it can be very, very devastating to our economy in a very short period of time. And so this is why we need our own source. And I mean, even Tesla's sort of coming around to this. Tesla's looking at doing their own sort of lithium refining, uh, you know, in the United States. They're looking for a way to extract it out of clay and do their own refining, right? That's what Elon Musk is doing. So Elon Musk has got a pretty solid relationship with China. But, you know, when you see even him sort of taking a step back and saying, maybe I should find my own source here, right? Yeah. Um, it's a red flag. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thank you so, yeah, so, so much. Me. But yeah, there's other things like Anbang, you know, we uncovered some lobbies and, you know, people helped me. So, you know, and, and it really was a, a team effort. And that was, that was the really great thing about it. You know, I said Twitter is my home and, you know, my followers were my family and they really, really were. You get really attached to strangers. It's very, very strange. <laughs> Yeah, it's very, very odd, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, and it, I don't know, 
it was so disappointing to me because, you know, you hear these things about social media and how dangerous social media is and how awful it is and how there's hate rampant and, you know, there's, there's racism and there, there are these platforms that are being used for terrible things. And it just, I saw the complete opposite on my platform. It's totally I based saw, on your perspective. I saw so many different people from all over the world coming together, you know, people who don't even speak the same languages, translating and communicating and, and understanding and learning and, you know, working together. And I mean, it was a really, really fantastic thing to see. Like it was incredible to see, right? Um, you know, if you had have told me that, you know, I would have had, you know, people, I mean, today even, you know, people were translating, somebody was retweeting me and, and people were translating, uh, you know, my thread on the, the WEF into Hebrew. Somebody was translating awesome. it into Hebrew. You know, so it just, I saw the opposite. I saw many people from many different parts of the world, many different ethnicities, uh, you know, sort of coming together for and, and, and working together and understanding each other. And that's what's that was supposed to be the power of social media, right? That was supposed to be the good that social media can do. And so, you know, it was, it was really, really hard to see that shut down because I learned so much. Yeah, no, I understand. I never thought I was ever going to learn about. Yeah. I came into this complete lay person. I wasn't a politician. I wasn't a journalist, right? I, I was just a basic watch your six o'clock news kind of girl. I didn't know anything about BlackRock. I didn't know anything about, you know, I didn't even really know anything about China, even though my husband's from China. Right? So what you're saying is you got red pilled. <laughs> I, I really did. I really did. And I, I really yeah. took the red pill in a, in a big way, right? Yeah. Just like, <laughs> 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 oh, I did, right? I was yeah. like, let's see how far this rabbit hole goes. Um, yeah. And it went pretty far. <laughs> it, it always does. It always does. It's it's almost bottomless. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just really frustrating when you know you see the government talking about how they have to censor the internet mm -hmm. to combat hate, and then you see you know you see people like me and people like Michael Sanger who are being censored, and you know we're bringing people together from all over the world. Uh, to work together and and you know start conversations, really deep conversations, uh, really meaningful conversations. So when you see people like us, you know, doing the exact thing that social media was meant for, mm -hmm. uh, and being you know being deplatformed, it's it's heartbreaking. Well, well, it's it's the it's it's the story right now because we have that Bill C eleven. And I believe it's uh, C-32. There's those two bills in Parliament right now that it could it could wipe individuals like you and I off off the map. I wouldn't be able to I do a weekly show. Right. So I wouldn't be able to do that if uh, somebody who disagrees with me politically thinks that maybe in two weeks I might make a, a hate based joke. Right. Uh, that's that's part of the one bill. And then the other one is they want to regulate all content creators to be. Uh, light licensed in some in some aspect and both of those bills they would they would completely get rid of of individuals like you and I and it's it's that the point well, is, is really out. <laughs> what's that 
I think they've already wiped me out, to be honest. I'm not really sure where to go from here. <laughs> well, no, you that's that's not true though. There there is the alternative platforms, and I understand that they they've cut you down a little bit, but you're getting out there. You are. You know, you type you still can type your name into Twitter and pull up a whole bunch of information. It's just not under your tag, right? And so uh cancel culture, it can come for you. But as long as you keep on keeping on, like, they're not going to shut you up. They're not going to because what you have is the truth, right? And the truth, like sunlight is the best disinfectant. If they're cutting your tongue out, it means you're right, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, my, my good friend warned me about this, Darshan Maharaja, and he was also one of the first people. He, he looked at my first article uh, and he's fantastic. So he's under, uh, he's at Theophane's Rex. He's, he's probably the smartest person I've ever met. I don't, I don't think I've ever met anybody more intelligent than he is. Uh, you know, when you look at the breadth of what he knows about different cultures and societies and, and he's just incredible. And so, you know, he, he sort of warned me, he just said, Andy, you know, you should really be writing articles. So, um, you know, I didn't really take heed because uh, I like shooting out Twitter stories. They're easy. It's convenient when you're a mom, you've got mm -hmm. little ones, you know, you can sort of build these stories and just do quick threads, you know, while you're playing with your kids or whatever. Um, so that was how a lot of my stories got out. And then, you know, those would form the backbone and then I would go back and sort of rewrite the articles later using that. It would almost be like a draft, mm -hmm. right? Um, so he did sort of warn me that, I should have been writing articles and I should have tried to, you know, got myself onto a, a different platform a while ago. You so know what though? Have, you got like your I information said, out the there. Man. He's the smartest man I know. So uh, I probably should have listened to him. Right? But you know what? It's never too late to start. You're, you're in a good position. You know, you got your name now. You might not have a Twitter, but you do have your name and you're in a good position to use it. You are. Well, I mean, I still have an appeal in. So mm -hmm. Twitter seems to be sort of ignoring hearing that appeal. Um, you know, I, I email them like pretty much every day, um, ask them if they're going to appeal my account. Uh, and so, you know, they do seem to be sort of avoiding that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other people who were suspended at the same day that I was suspended, their appeals have been heard and they've been turned down. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if they were sort of, you know, prepared for the backlash that, you know, and Twitter put up quite a fight uh, on my behalf. Oh. They, they yeah, really I could did. Imagine. <laughs> I, I mean, could imagine. I could imagine. Right? I remember. <laughs> I saw the Jordan Peterson were, tweet. Well, they were like, Andy, you're trending on Twitter. I was yeah, like, of course I'm yeah. on Twitter. I'm not even there, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Um, fantastic. No, Twitter put up a heck of a, a heck of a battle. So it seems like, you know, they've heard other appeals and, and shut those down. And I don't know if they know what, what to do with mine. I think they're just yeah. sort of sitting there thinking, you know, do we. You're a real you threat. Know? You're a real threat, Andy. You're a real threat. Well, I mean, if they, you know, don't hear my appeal, you know, are they going to go through this, this sort of awful process where they're, you know, they're being bombarded for, for weeks again? Well, hashtag. they did manage to ban the president, and like, so I think that 
they might have a way of just ignoring it, you know? <laughs> but then, I mean, Vladimir Putin's got an account, right? Yeah, and I think the Ayatollah as well. It's like... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Normally he's got, a, he's got an account too, right? Um, just yeah. wild, right? Yeah. And uh, so anyways, we should, we should probably wrap this up. This is really... Yeah, yeah, long. that's what I was thinking. So, okay, uh, they can find you on Getter at the... Andy Lee and yeah. your website, Andy Lee VNA.com. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining the show. This one's for you, Andy Lee. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Yeah, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed that. All right. So I'm going to just wrap this up real quick and uh, we're going to call it a night. Thanks for joining the stream. That was Andy Lee. Uh, there's going to be a whole podcast version of that. It's going to be uploaded uh, within the hour. Okay. Or maybe two. Give me a little bit. I got to get to the website and all that. Uh, before we go, those announcements I wanted to make. Subscribestar is live. You can be a sponsor of the show. Tiers ranging anywhere from five to two hundred and fifty bucks. If you give me two hundred and fifty bucks a, a month, I'm not I'm not taking my clothes off or anything like that for you. It's not happening. But you can, and I'd appreciate it. Uh, I want to thank a lot of the people who joined in on the chat, Gary, as well as Mike Phillip. Nice to see you there, man. And uh, as well as third, third stringer in uh, the Discord and Phil over on Telegram. March 19th, I'm going to be over at the protest in Toronto, the Worldwide March. And coming up, we have Mark Emery. He's going to be on the 28th live, an interview with Mark Emery and an interview with Esoteric Eddie on april the 11th he's really cool you're gonna enjoy that guy he gets really into the deep deep conspiracies anyways thanks again uh i would take some calls but i think it's time to call it a night thanks again for joining me i'll see you next week this one's for you